Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. My name is Scott Ramage, and I have my co-host Josh Price with me here today. Today, we are welcoming David Littlejohn. David is a husband, father, entrepreneur, business owner, community volunteer, and lifelong learner. He and his wife, Heather, have been married for 15 years and have three daughters. They live in rural Oregon. More on that later. Uh, He's a 20-year veteran of the financial industry and has a degree from the University of North Carolina and is a certified financial planner. David has a passion for small business and has been directly involved in nine different startups. He owns Little John Financial Services, co-owns a software firm that specializes in investment analysis and has a handful of investment properties and consulting ventures. Outside of the office, David enjoys time with his family, skiing, outdoor adventure, technology, home automation, and the idea of personal balance. Welcome to the show, David. It's really awesome to have you. Thanks for having me, Scott. (laughs) What made you laugh? (laughs) Oh, the personal balance comment, just because of our personal history. And you you know, it's like uh, a work in progress all the time. And you know, some days it's like, oh yeah, sure, there's some balance. And other days you go, what did I get myself into? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Josh and I can both attest to that. And uh, Josh, you don't actually believe in balance, do you? I don't. I don't yeah, believe in balance. Yeah, I believe in. Uh, yeah, I believe in a system of um, of change. So you focus on uh, you know values, different values in your life, and then there's minimum acceptable standards that you have to maintain in each one. But there is no balance. That's it. I think that's a whole nother podcast to tell you the yeah. truth. Yeah. Well, remember balance uh, comes with inertia too. So yes. uh, just like the bicycle, it's easier to balance the faster you go. Cause it starts. To- <laughs> I yeah. love that. So yeah. there you go. I tend to go really fast to try and stay up <laughs> um, and then switch directions extremely fast. And we see how that works. So uh, reading your bio, man, nine startups, and now you're in the financial world. Like, Give us a quick story of how you got to the place you're at today. Like walk us through your history a little bit. Okay. Well, so it's the story of accidents that led to intention, right? Which is kind of a fun way to describe it. Uh, I went to, so I was in North Carolina. Uh, I graduated back in the late nineties and uh, was in a fraternal organization. One of my fraternity brothers had started a small business. And so it was kind of a dot-com ish in the dot-com era and we, we went to work together, uh, loved it. It was it was really valuable experience as a, an entrepreneurial startup, but uh, it did fail. And I found myself sort of searching for a job and did what every really well-directed uh, kid essentially at that age would do, which is, well, I went online and since it was 1999 and there were literally, there were jobs everywhere at that point in history. It was the dot-com era. It was the new economy of everything growing to the moon. And I just answered an online ad that sounded interesting uh, and it ended up being insurance training. <laughs> so it was, it was insurance sales. It was door to door insurance sales. Uh, I lasted about two months. Ironically, some of the most valuable experience in my life, uh, really important for just getting over uh, a certain hurdles that you may have for uh, like sales reluctance, that sort of thing. But it also told me exactly what I didn't want to do. Uh, I had a roommate at the time who had an internship with a college with a financial advisor and met him. And because I had an insurance license, I said, Hey, I have an idea. And really the rest of it became a get started in the financial industry. I started in insurance and benefit packages, graduated into working with personal finance. Then the dot-com bubble popped. And about the end of 2001, I had no real book of business for what I was doing because I kind of started in an independent shop. It wasn't a big firm like a, at the time the big firms were like Merrill Lynch and Smith Barney and uh, it wasn't there. It was small local shop that was uh, a lot of independent entrepreneur types, which suited my personality. But I said, you know, I'm 22 years old. Who's trusting some kid with their life savings when the markets are tanking, right? Uh, through a family connection was introduced to some folks back in Oregon, not in my hometown, but they were looking for somebody that was willing to get licensed so that they could start a financial firm. And having nothing else going on in my life other than uh, 
you know, my girlfriend of the time was not real pleased that I was going to move across the country for a job, but rent. <laughs> so yeah. uh, made the call and ended up interviewing this. Now this is, you can't make this up. This is crazy, but I interviewed on 9-11, like the actual 9-11 day. That was my interview. Wow. Weirdest interviews ever because we all kind of look at each other as the world's melting down around us. And they go, it was literally like this. I guess if you want the job, you can have it. And we all looked somewhere else. And I just kind of went, okay. And that was it. And so I moved my life back to where I now live, Roseburg, Oregon. And, uh, you know, after history, I could say it sad at the time the relationship I was in did end. But happy now because it's, you know, I ultimately met my wife and started my family and I'm, I'm a blessed man. But that was the start of where my career got interesting. Two years starting a financial firm, poached away by a bank, spent about five years in a bank environment uh, as the investment department uh, manager and VP. And then I um, got involved in trust portfolio management. And then at some point, CEO and executive turnover within the bank changed the culture. And I made the choice to exit, partnered with another advisor for a little while. That was not the right fit. And it led me to my own practice, which I started in 2010. And so I've been in practice now for the last 10 years as an individual financial advisor. And then in between, there's other salt and pepper of other startups I've been involved in. But that, that was sort of this, this pathway of experience to go from independent to compliance to institutional management to trust management back into the independent side to running your own business. So uh, uh, an odd circuit to get here, but has given me a great look at many facets of the industry. So uh, I'm real grateful for that. And now, now uh, it makes me a reasonable consultant when talking with folks about how their businesses operate. Yeah, I think your, your exposure to all of those facets of business and startups and entrepreneurialism uh, it's really unique. I mean, you, you knew that's what drove me to you, right? Like we, we really, we really thrived kind of on that conversation. Entrepreneurs love each other. Yeah. Uh, it's, there's just something about it. Like if, if at least it's entrepreneurs that uh, are, that I believe will gravitate towards success. You know, if you're a really selfish entrepreneur, I think you're going to struggle because yeah. I have a real simple philosophy the pie is too big for any of us to eat. There's so much that's available mm -hmm. and we can make it bigger. There's so much that there's no sense in being selfish. You should just find folks that identify with your value system. And then I think Josh, as you kind of said, you know, just start pushing and spin the plates, <laughs> but, but don't worry about like, Oh, there's not enough. I need to protect it. And then uh, I'm amazed in my life. I, I, I give away almost everything. And it, it comes back to me only because people don't have enough time to do it anyway. Right. I mean, I could give you all of my secrets and you would say, great, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to come to you now because at least I know I like your secrets. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount from you. And so um, I'm, I'm pretty excited to dive into some of that. But I do feel like you kind of left one big thing out of your story. And it's something I don't know a lot about. But you seem to have a fascination with things that fly. <laughs> well, there's two things. I'll tell you, you know about that one. Uh, in, in 2006, there was, there was some legislative change to the way uh, aircraft were certified. And there, there was a niche aircraft certification that came out. One of my clients at the time was an aircraft engineer. And uh, uh, he and I and a, another partner formed a small uh, manufacturing company and we were building airplanes uh, when the dot com well not dot com in 2008 hit you know we started in 06 2008 wiped out so much wealth in our country but a lot of the discretionary you know discretionary wealth is in personal aviation what I mean it's a very discretionary wealth and uh, also there was this tremendous uh, wave of new manufacturers that showed up and we just got sort of eaten in the fray uh, the business model didn't fail, believe it or not, but the economy around it just sort of unraveled. And we said, you know, even on life support, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. There's no profit in it long-term. So there was passion for it, but it, it was, it was time, but I still have over here on the wall. I still have the propeller from our first plane sitting against my wall. <laughs> yeah. You used, well, you used to have one hanging in your office, if I remember correctly, somewhere. 
or it, something. Maybe it was always just in your office against the wall. Yeah, we, I always <laughs> talked about uh, putting, making it into a ceiling fan. That's plane propellers are pretty heavy. Yes. <laughs> you can do it, but if that thing falls, it's like a window maker. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Man, I, I just, first of all, I, I commend you because during this whole um, COVID uh, situation, I noticed that you were doing a ton of um, online education for students, for financial education for kids, which I think is phenomenal. It's one of those topics that I think needs to be covered in school, like how to handle money. Like, what does it mean to own money? And you, you took the, the bull by the horns and like, I'm just going to do it. Um, so first of all, thanks for doing that. I think that was really stellar. But I want to get into the topic of um, money. I want to talk about money. And I want to talk about people's relationship with money. So um, saying that, what, what, do you, what do you think of when I say relationship of money? Well, it's a bunch. Uh, it's a term I use a lot. So I, I have a radio show and we talk, it's called the True Wealth Show. And the, the, the name of it actually came from somebody else, but the core principles are something that I really personally believe in. It's this idea that we, we misappropriate what money needs to be. Uh, emotionally all the time. Yeah. And uh, money's a resource, right? It's just how you trade your time. And it's how you store the value of that time. But the the true wealth is the memories and relationships we build, right? I mean, if, if you think about it, that's the only stuff that sticks with you. Money can come and go. But the, the, the experiences that we have together, the relationships we form, those bonds and those memories, those are the things that really matter to us. It's also the thing we look back on. And, and, you know, you treasure those things. Your experiences are what you, you relive them in your mind. You think fondly on them. Uh, and we know we mostly think fondly on them because the, the, the bad stuff, eventually we look back on it and we go, well, that was bad. But we don't remember the pain. In fact, in, in our periods of loneliness, sometimes we actually reinvent it like it was good. You know, I always joke. It's like everybody has a psycho ex-girlfriend until they're lonely. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, and, you know, the, in relationships, there's always, you know, two parties. So that, you know, right. it's rarely are we without guilt in that one. But I, I, the, the relationship with money part, Scott, is I think one of these key elements that it, it's part of it's within our own culture, socially, how we address it. And then at an individual level, how people uh, feel. And sometimes it's, it's not even a conscious relationship with money, but the, the decisions and the ways that we handle things I see so many people that unintentionally damage themselves and they do it because they've got psychology factors that are sort of embedded, whether they're conscious or unconscious. Uh, some of them, again, we culturally just push people one direction or another, you know, the keep up with the Joneses kind of stuff. And we're marketed to all the time and, and we create a, a, a want that we perceive as a need. Right. So we, we see that a lot. Uh, but the, the term and the reason I coined that one is, uh, I think it kind of hits everybody at their core is that you, we don't consciously think of it as like, well, I have a relationship with money. We just think, well, you know, I got to go spend it or not. You, you have a relationship with money, right? How you relate to it, your attitude about it, whether it's, whether you're aware of it or not, you absolutely do. And I think that part of the reason that we have such a significant financial struggle in this country for a lot of people is because of the relationship element that we have. <clears throat> Otherwise, why would you see so many stories about people that have like nothing that are able to develop something? And what's the difference between them and everybody else? Are they, are they just lucky? Uh, the, I'm not going to say that there's zero luck involved. I mean, circumstance and where you're at in the situation matters, but there's some core principles at work here. And they're just lost on us culturally. And, it, and I think it starts at the relationship level. And if we recognize, um, just like in a relationship with, you know, as, as, as um, fathers and husbands, right? If we think about our, our relationships with our family, when there's problems, oftentimes a lot of it's really, we got to look back at us. You know, what are we doing as leaders and how are we messing that up? When it comes to money, we really need to look at us. Right? What are yeah. we doing? We're not a victim here. What are we doing? So uh, I, I hope, hopefully I'm addressing the question appropriately for you. But yeah, I think the relationship is really critical and really overlooked culturally for us. Okay, so let's get practical here. What is probably 
the most malaligned relationship people have that you see most commonly that cause the biggest problems or, or a few of them? You know, the problems tend to be more about behavior. I think okay. the first one is uh, maybe what I just spoke about a second ago, though, the difference between a want and a need, right? If I think about relationship, that's not a relationship with the money. That's, um, that's a mentality issue with how we manage it, though. You know, what's a want? What's a need? How are we prioritizing these things? Uh, because, you know, I, I see people that they say, well, I need a vehicle. I said, that's probably true in many places. I live in a rural community without a lot of public transportation. The weather is very iffy. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and regionally, it's really spread out. So, you know, you could be going seven miles one way or the other real easily. It only takes you 10 minutes to get there by vehicle. But if you're on a bike, you, I'm not saying you can't do it, but I'm saying eight months out of the year, you could be getting rained on. And it's not real functional in, in that respect. Uh, so reliable transportation, sure. But you don't need to go buy an $80,000 truck with a lift kit to do it. And Are you sure? Any, uh, well, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and culturally around here, a lot of people will do that. They'll, and the other thing is um, they, will, they want to look like they have money. This facade of having money, uh, ironically, again, or I'm almost the opposite. You know, the drug dealer wants to take all the hundred dollar bills and put them on the outside of their, their roll of cash. And, you know, if I have cash, which is rare, I do the opposite. I'm like, what put the small bills out there? I don't need to attract attention. <laughs> so I don't know what they're thinking. So the, it, it runs back into status. It's a status thing, right? It's a yeah. status thing. Uh, and if there was one thing I wish that we could all get over, it is stop assigning value to people based on how much money they have. You know, your your net worth is not your personal worth. Having a high net worth means that you have more flexibility in terms of the ability to access things, right? Money is not evil. Money is a tool, right? Uh, we, we have a real cultural problem with separating the tool from the operator. And I'm, I'm not going to try to go all political here, but they, you know, a gun's an inanimate object. The person is the one operating it. That's what makes it scary. Uh, when a child accesses and there's a problem, it's because somebody was irresponsible and allowed access to occur, right? It's on right. the person. It's not the instrument. And somebody can say all day long, well, it's built to do this terrible thing. Well, even if that is the case, it's still up to the person for how it is managed. I mean, a kitchen knife can be deadly. And yet, when we're prepping dinner, nobody's threatened by it. You know, we know better. Be smart. Don't cut yourself. It's a kitchen knife. Duh. Right. Uh, I mean, a table saw is terribly dangerous. Unplug it when there, there's no, you know, your kids aren't at risk. And, and be safe. Wear the right equipment. Uh, but money is like that. Money's a tool. And yet, folks will, uh, they'll act the victim, I, you know, and, and then, I think that's my issue is that I see a lot of people that we have this funny attitude about it. It's just a resource. It's just a resource. And so if you have a lot of money, great. You know, you can go on vacations, you can buy stuff or or whatever. Although again, most of the time the folks that have a lot of resources, there are few of them are flaunting it if they've earned the resources, right? They know what it took to earn them. (laughs) So they're a little more humble in that process. It's the folks that sort of, get it out of entitlement or instant wealth. You know, instant wealth is the real dangerous one because that's where people just sort of harm themselves. You know, why do lottery winners lose their money so quickly? They develop none of the habits it took to make the money. So they have none of the habits to keep it. So what are some of those habits? Like identify habits to keep money. (laughs) Well, how how about a really simple one? Spend less than you make. Mm -hmm. Live within your means. Yeah, I mean, and or under your means. Live, live, live under your means, and then there, there are a million books about this stuff. So right. I'm not. This is, there's nothing new I'm about to share. Here. Maybe the framing will help somebody, but uh, the idea of pay yourself first. Uh, if if you need to save a percentage of your money, you need to commit to the savings first, and then spend what's left. Because if you spend everything first and hope to save what's left, people spend it all. Because there's a psychology and there's a detachment from money. Uh, let me give you an example, Scott. Uh, I don't know that you spend a lot of time in casinos, especially now because they're all shut down, right? But why do you think they use chips? It's easier to lose them. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's, a, there's actually an emotional detachment. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
Why do people spend more on a credit card? Same reason. Same reason. It's an emotional detachment. What happens is we actually want a reason to spend more. As an example, if somebody uh, gets a tax refund, they think, oh, look, bonus money. And what someone will do is they will, they will spend it in anticipation of the refund. And then when they get the refund, they'll spend it again when they actually have it. They'll spend it twice, even though they never had it in the first place. And newsflash people, that was your money from the get-go. Yeah. Not like found money. It was the money you earned and then you just created a reckless spending habit around it. Yeah. So this, this idea that we get emotionally detached from money, I mean, credit cards are proven anywhere from 13 to sometimes as high as 50% more on a purchase with a credit card. In fact, with sports tickets specifically, they found that if you were going to go to a sporting event, again, this is like ancient history right now compared to what we're dealing with, but people would spend up to almost double when using a credit card versus paying cash. You know, oh, we're going to go to a basketball game. I'll pay $24 in cash, but I'll pay up to $60 with my credit card to go to that game. Hmm. The emotional detachment from spending is dangerous, right? And, and I see it all the time. So you know, start with why you guys know Dave Ramsey, I imagine. Of course. Yeah. And so he's real big on the envelope system. The envelope system is like, hey, take your budget, put cash allocated to that particular category. And when you're out of money, stop spending. You know why he does that? Two reasons. Well, there's more than two. There's two big ones. One, it works. So, all right, that, that's good. But it's because you, you're not detached from dollars. We know exactly what the value is. You know, that it's studies will show you spend less with cash because it's more painful to get rid of the cash. You see it leave. It's like, bye-bye. Yeah, so people have a, a, a bad relationship with money, so they just need to change it. I mean, this is, this is a it's, psychological behavioral thing we're talking about. So the first thing is you got to be aware of it, okay? So Scott, I'm going to pivot for a moment because I know that you come out of the fitness industry. Mm -hmm. I think there's a tremendous parallel between financial fitness and physical fitness. How okay. often does somebody fail at uh, body transformation through fitness? All the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you had to say on a percentage basis, uh, when you look at the, the number and just say like, okay, so you have New Year's resolutions. How, what's, what's this percentage fail rate? Gotta be 80 plus percent. I would wager probably higher than that. Yeah. yeah. Now you've had the benefit of working with probably thousands of people in your lifetime, uh, working on their personal fitness journeys. Mm -hmm. What do you Same think? with Josh. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you as well, Josh and uh, Josh and I just don't have the same history. I need yeah. To, yeah. Bring me in on this yeah. here, Josh. So what do you guys think makes somebody su successful? I mean, you've seen people that are successful. What's the difference? Daily habits, daily, what they do. Yeah. yeah the actual actions. Yeah. And accountability. I mean, accountability. That, that's a big one. Yep. Okay. So do they have a plan? Yes. Right. I mean, like yeah. a strategy that you actually execute on, right? Right. Right. And some of these daily habits have to be relearned. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a biggie is that uh, if you want a permanent transformation, you have to realize that the, you had an old life that you're leaving behind and you're going to have a new life moving forward. And you have to be emotionally ready to commit to that. Yeah. Because if you're going on a diet, what you're doing is saying, I will temporarily borrow my term earlier here, Josh. I'll live out of balance for a little while because I want to get back to home base. So I'll just try to get to the goal. And it's like a video game mentality, right? Let's unlock that achievement. Ching, you know, get the little token or whatever. And then I'm going to go back to what I was doing. And you, but that's back to what you were doing is what you brought you there before. Yeah. You, you yeah. can't go back there. Right. I, so, I remember. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I was going to say, I think something that's really important to define here is what is dangerous about spending, right? Because we, I think we're kind of skipping over that of like, well, what are the dangers of this? Because I think some people don't realize them just like they don't with their health. They don't realize like, oh my God, I could have a heart attack because that's 20 years down the line, it's 30 years down the line. So you've mentioned dangerous a couple of times. So let's Let's define that. What could happen? Well, for one, you find yourself, you've, you've spent everything. And once you've done that, you really do limit your options a lot. It's much harder to start with zero than to even start with one, right? Even just a minimum amount in your, so uh, as, as much as, and I'm, I'm going to be very careful about the way I describe this, but let's just for circumstance sake, describe this. Uh, if you could start with, uh, a credit card and a thousand dollar limit 
versus starting with zero, I'd rather have the credit card. I am not advocating anybody do that, but having right. any amount of liquidity improves just a little bit because you're like, well, at least I can eat while I figure out my next circumstance. And if you think about that, this is what makes homelessness such a devastating cycle, right? And it's very hard to break out of because you fall below the minimum resource level to even break out and find escape loss. There is a minimum stability level with which you kind of need to get to in order to access the, the, the economy. And that activation energy, I'm, I'm, I'm a conservative guy politically. I mean, I, I'm okay saying like, look, I'm a Christian guy. I mean, I'm a, a lot of my philosophies are going to be biblically grounded, but I'm not going to run around and try to beat you over the head with the Bible and tell you like, well, God's told you to fail. No, no, that's not how God operates at all. In fact, he really wants everybody to succeed. We get a lot of choice in this matter. Having said all of that, I'm okay with a social safety net. I like paying some taxes. And again, I'm a conservative guy. And uh, you know, I think the government has a lot of shortfalls because of the way it operates. Not, not, the, not the concept of what it's trying to do, but just because it's run by people and it's got a lot, it's big and it's got you know, a lot of parts that are not well connected. And so there's a lot of slop in the system and a lot of waste. That happens in the private sector too. So don't get me wrong. My issue, though, is without a social safety net, certain people fall below that minimum threshold and they get lost and they get trapped and they get into like a barter economy and a survival economy. But there's not a bright future in that. It's really hard to pull out of that dive. Not impossible, but very difficult. So I'm sensitive to the reality there. But provided that you can get even a minimum wage job, you can start with that. And with the right attitude, there is a pathway out and into reasonable financial success. Not everybody's going to be the next Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. That's not going to happen. But I think, I think everybody, I think there's enough wealth in this country that we don't have to, through social safety nets, lift everybody out. We could actually produce an economy capable of everybody self-supporting. Right. You know, and, and if we, and if you disagree with me, I would, I would challenge whoever's watching this or listening to this podcast Consider that 100 years ago, if you didn't farm, you starved, right? We didn't rely on our neighbor to farm for us so that we didn't starve. We all chipped in and went and did. Mm -hmm. So there is no successful economy where you don't chip in, right? We have to, just because the world has evolved a lot, when we start to say things like, well, the robots do all the work so we can just sit around. Okay, Wally is a bad concept right? We all, we, what happens is the economy evolves, new opportunities present, and there's creative destruction, right? So industries rise and fall and new things will materialize. There will always be a place for humans and there will always be things for us to do, even if it is to, to create new things, you know, more art, more culture, more, it will always be there. So don't get caught in that thinking that the pie is, can, will not be able to creatively be grown here it will but you can't just sit on your hands you can't okay so what <laughs> yeah. yeah so you said one of the dangers is limited options you know uh falling below this this kind of minimum standard or or whatever do you have do you have any ways to define that minimum standard well i don't but i can tell you that the more responsibilities you have the more expensive life gets right uh, i have three kids and I run a business. And so my responsibility level for the families that are counting on me to run a business in a healthy fashion, uh, and then my family, and they're you know, helping not only to provide for them, but also train them to grow into the role of providing for themselves. Uh, so those responsibilities escalate as your capacity grows. But uh, at, a, at a minimum level, I don't, I don't think the government defines it. I mean, if there's a secret hunt around there for like, is it the minimum wage? Is it a, a line in the sand where below this level is the poverty level? Uh, I, it, the math is regional. You know, it takes a different amount of money in Roseburg, Oregon, where I live, than it takes in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, of Texas, right? I mean, there's, there's different tax structures. There's different economic influences there, and there's more people and different things going on. So... It's hard to have a hard and fast line. Uh, but what I can tell you is most people misallocate. And, you know, again, the wants and needs things. If you have to, get some roommates. You know, find stable housing so you have a stable address. You need a stable address so that you can have uh, functional 
connection to a banking system because whether we like it or not, while we have a cash system in an underground economy, it's not a very good system to try to stay solvent legally, right? I mean, like if you work in the underground economy, you can kind of scrape by, but you never reach that stability point because you're always having to look for the next underground gig, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, I, I believe that you want a path to legitimacy in the economy and uh, it can start really poor. You just have to say, well, then where, where are the sacrifices? But if you do those sacrifices, I mean, I had roommates when I got started. And I, I had, uh, I actually had medical debt when I got started. I had, uh, I, even though I was insured, I had a, an emergency appendectomy and it left with a, it was a big bill on top of my bill for moving across the country. So I know what it's like to start in a hole and be uh, living on peanuts and digging your way out. And what it meant was I didn't get to go on the, I didn't go out with buddies to the bar and I didn't do a lot of exotic yeah. stuff. It's like beans and rice for a while. And it sucked. Uh, and I'm not going to say it's, well, look at the character of Bill. No, I mean, building character is no fun. Right. Working out hurts. If, if you're serious, I mean, if you love like pain of working out, you're weird. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. you're kind of lucky. If you like love to hurt and, it, and you like get a result for that, it's like, well, you're wired for it. That's great. Most of us have to like endure because the result is worth it. So we go through that rough patch to get to the result. And finance is like that. It's like, it's not always that easy. And, and we're, we're sold this idea that it's just, oh, everything should be, it should be overnight wealth. Everybody's going to be a rap star or something. Right. No. Yeah. And, and like, oh, I'm going to start a YouTube channel and get a million, a billion subscribers because I'm, you know, reviewing iPhones or something. Like everybody's doing that. Lightning has to strike. It's, it's like a, it's, it's almost a lottery concept. And yes, there are things you could do to influence it, but uh, do something else too. Maybe that works, but like have more than one path because you know? uh, people are trying, they, they want it too easy sometimes. And that's a, that, there's a relationship with money event for you is it's not without sacrifice. There's going to be trades, yep. but I'll tell you a hint. There's a secret about money. Money has velocity, right? So um, John Maxwell writes about this. And I remember he talks about the concept of momentum. And in leadership, one of the things that you want to start building is momentum. A little, it, it takes a lot of energy to get a big ball rolling, right? It's just, right. But, but once it's going, it takes a lot of energy to stop it. And so adding a little bit of input each time, the momentum grows and grows and grows. And money has velocity. Good decisions lead to more decisions. And because money is one of the things in our life that can compound in a capital system, you can, you can reach escape velocity and not only can you reach escape velocity, but you can magnify to where you have incredible resources and you can do tremendous good with those. You do tremendous harm too. But I think if you learn the habits along the way, what takes to get there, if it's, if it's foundationally grounded in the stuff that we're all trying to talk about, which is fatherhood, being a good spouse, being a good community leader and being a you know, servant leader from, from your heart, right? If you're starting with those, imagine the good you can do. I'm glad you said that because the next question I had is then what is the vision for money or of money? And you kind of started going into it there of of serving others and abundance and everything. And I think it's good. uh, We have a model in the brotherhood of avoiding pain and uh, moving toward an outcome or moving towards abundance, right? So it's good to know the dangers and everything. That way you're aware but we don't want to do something just for that. We want to do it because of this other side. So tell me, go into that uh, further and tell me about your vision for money, for resources. Sure. Well, first of all, we're, we're called to be stewards, right? But this is something I think is really important. And, and I'm going to go ahead and speak from a, a pretty Christian perspective on this one. So if, if you're listening and that's not your game, first, you know, I'll just kind of throw out the challenge do your homework because I don't think Christians are crazy. Uh, You know, I think there's a ton more evidence than you may realize, but for those of you that are already aligned, this will be pretty tidy. Uh, One of the things that we're challenged on and and I'll, I'll connect all the dots for you here, Josh is we're told to tithe, right? And we're, we're supposed to tithe joyfully, but also obediently. Right now, sometimes the joy is a little tough. There have been times when I tithe and I'm like, okay, well, Lord, you know, I'm going to be obedient. And I hope that you understand that I'm trying to reach the joy. 
Yeah. I'll be obedient. Uh, but, uh, and they don't like it. And then later on, they realize the benefit and the joy sort of follows. And so it's just, where are we in our relationship? So as stewards, we're told to be obedient and to tithe. We're also told that we can't outgive God and that the reward will be received for it, right? But, but this is where people make the mistake. Sometimes they want to believe that the reward is financial. I'm not a prosperity doctrine guy that says like, well, if you tithe more, you'll get more money. Uh, interestingly enough, that often happens. Like it often happens. The more financially obedient you are, the more, because uh, I tell people like, if God can't trust you with the little stuff, how can he trust you with the big stuff, right? And the money's obvious. It's like, it's, it's math. It's like, well, do the math and do what it says. Uh, and don't worry about what the church does with the money. That's up to the leadership of the church, right? God's, influencing how that goes. So you just need to do your part and be obedient. Here's where those dots connect though, Josh. Um, it, if the reward is not about financial, but the financial is a natural follow through of the reward, we're going to get rewarded in the ways that God has sort of appointed us to be rewarded. Our stewardship is not just financial. It's all of the gifts that we've been given, right? So we're supposed to, to use our talents in the, in the sphere of influence that we're allowed and in, in the function that we are. Not everybody needs to have lots of money because I'll, I'll tell you another secret about money. It, it doesn't really make you happy. I mean, you know, lots of rich people that are really miserable. What it does is it gets you over the first problem, which is when you don't have any money, that's the only problem you can see. All the other problems are masked. Once you have money, then you see all the other damage too, which we all have, <laughs> you know? So when I think about the goal, it's about start by being a good steward. And we, we trust that the Lord rewards our obedience and our diligence. It, it, there's no guarantees that there won't be hardship in our life. That's not the point. The point is be a good steward because we're, we're told to. So that's about being obedient and and my expectation is that you're going to find joy in the obedience, like because we're rewarded the same way our, you know, as a father, when my kids do something great, I love to celebrate with them. When they have an achievement, you know, they do something great. It's awesome. It's 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 really fun. I believe that that's the the relationship that, you know, God from a Christian perspective, that's exactly what He's looking for. Is you know, I want. The reward. Not always does it happen that way. It's not without pain, not because he wants us to be enduring pain, but because we live in a broken world, pain is going to be part of it. So it's inescapable in that respect. But also another weird nugget in talking about the relationship, because this all fits together, believe it or not, is you have to have the perspective, right? Some people will say like, well, you know, the you're self-limiting if you you know acknowledge that bad stuff happens. You need to just rise above it. No, no. The the downtimes are very important. It's where we grow. It's where we learn, and it gives us that perspective of appreciation when we have really good times. Yeah, like the roller coaster. You have to have the bottom part of the roller coaster to enjoy the top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a flat ride. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of a story I heard yesterday about the. Um, survival rate of people held in hostage in, in, in slave encampments. Mm-hmm. Um, the top death rate for um, those men, the ones that died the most, the optimists. Yeah. And, and, and it, it relates exactly to what you just said, because they're like expecting something, you know, next week we're going to be out of here and it doesn't happen. Um, I think maybe the same is true with the money. <laughs> We, if there was a relationship problem with money, it's about time and perspective. I think this is cultural, by the way. We're taught that for instant, we're really trained for instant gratification. You know, everything needs to be fast and now. And it's gotten worse, in my opinion, because the broadband makes everything just available. I remember dial up. Where you yeah, had me too. Like, like, okay, it was a text browser, and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, and so 2,400 bought, and it was a big deal when we got to like 19.6. Yeah. Um, and today, if you had a 19.6 connection, you'd be like throwing your phone on the ground out of frustration. Uh, right. It's We've just been trained in many respects 
to have instant gratification, microwave culture. I mean, go plant a garden. Seriously, I mean, like, watch something mature for a little while and respect that there's a cycle to things. You reap what you sow, and money is like seeds. You plant them, and then they mature, and you mature with it. Your habits mature with it. Uh, it's, it's funny to me. And, and stop thinking, you know, if, if we just traded food instead of money, we'd have a very different attitude about it. Right. If you yeah. think about it, if we were on a barter system, it would be really different. Mm-hmm. Because you know, you'd be like, "Well, how many barns are you going to build before you're like, what's more food than I need to deal with? This is stupid." Right. A lot of people keep score with money. You, you don't need to keep score with money, or if you are, it's like golf. Okay. Um, if you're having a golf tournament with people, then you're trying to beat the person. But most of the time, you're not in a tournament. You're out there trying to beat you. Uh, golf is a weird g- I'm not very good at golf, just so we're clear. Uh, but golf beats me all the time because of the mental decisions. And, you know, I think like I can do this superhuman thing. I've done it once in my lifetime. It'll happen. This t- I don't even play the statistics. I'm like the worst. As an investor, I'm so disciplined. As a golfer, I'm such a like maverick. And it, it's that when you're not disciplined in any area of your life, you just wreck it because the odds don't really work out that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. The casinos get it. We barely have better odds than you. We just never change our behavior. You will. And so mm. you screw it up. It's like, golly, yeah. let's just screw up less. It'd be amazing how successful you could become. The writing's kind of on the wall. I mean, the, the, the formula is really easy to see. So here's how I want to kind of close out is um, what can we do as parents uh, whether we're good at stewarding our money and our resources or not, or we have a lot or we have a little, what can we do uh, to raise kids who, who uh, follow a, a new path or a better path and have a positive, wonderful relationship with money? Yeah, I think what I would kind of add to that is what you said earlier. It was like, what are those core principles? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause that's what would, you know, if we can raise the kids on these core principles, teach them these, then it would. So I'm going to share something that um, I, haven't, I haven't brought this up in a while. It started as an entrepreneur's budget uh, because the entrepreneur's budget is a funny one. Uh, when you go to work for a company, they, they pull your taxes out of your check. And it, as long as you've withheld enough, at the end of the year, you kind of file some basic taxes and then you know, either get a little refund or you don't um, and you have to pay a little bit. But the idea is that they've sort of babysat you through the process. And then what you have left is what you operate on. And if you spend more than that, you're in trouble, right? Uh, but the entrepreneur's budget is one that when I started with this, what I was trying to come up with is something. And uh, again, uh, I, I see God's fingerprints all over stuff. So th- this is an interesting one for me, but uh, you know, God says the earth was made in seven days. Okay. And there's some biblical discussion about investing that says, you know, divide your lots in seven or eight. It's the idea that the diversification of income, but now let's talk to, to your question, Josh, what's a principle. Um, I think there's some budgetary principles that if you operate on these categorically, it's really hard to screw up. Okay, and the first one is you can't spend more than you make, but I want to break down how you would spend. And I'm going to use the days of the week as an example. So you divide seven days, and if your paycheck was spent over seven days, days one and two pay your taxes, right? So Monday and Tuesday pay your taxes. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are the money that you get to spend to operate your life, okay? Saturday you save and Sunday you give. Now, if we break those down on a percentage basis, it's about 15% per day, not quite, but your taxes would be 30% of your income for your state and federal taxes. If you make very little income, your tax rate will be lower than that. If you make a lot of money, your tax rate will be higher, but you won't need all three days for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, if you make a ton of money, you can live off of just, you know, Thursday and Friday. 
because some more goes to the taxes, but you can afford it because you make lots of money. And if you can't, if you don't make lots of money, then you probably only pay taxes on Monday. And then you get Tuesday through Friday to spend. But Saturday you save because you must pay yourself. And Sunday you give because again, that's part of the obedience cycle. And I will tell you also, I say obedience cycle. It's part about being obedient, but the, the giving cycle is very fascinating. I cannot explain it other than in my 20 year career, the people that give money have more money. Financially, there's something about participating in the system of benevolence that allows benevolence to come to you. I cannot make a mathematical example for it, but in principle, it is all I have ever seen manifest in my life is that those that give are the ones that opportunity is, seeks them out because they are part of the solution. And so they are included in the feedback loop. Yep. Uh, so that's the, but that's the Christian budgeting process to me is, you know, take, start on Monday and you just go pay your taxes, you know, and, and we could shift it around, start your week on Saturday, say, save on Saturday, give on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday goes to the government Wednesday through Friday. So however you want to shuffle it around. But the point is there's these categorical expenses. And if we spent that way, I don't need to tell you how much to pay on your rent versus your car versus your food. There's a reality of you have this many dollars to work with. And if you can't make it work in that, then you better figure out how to get economies of scale in the right spot. Yeah. The other thing I will tell you is there is no need to be proud about utilizing the social safety net if it enables you to reach escape velocity. I think that the social safety net is extremely important. I hate the abuse of it. Hate's a pretty strong word, but I don't believe anybody should ever be looking to game the system and figure out how to stay on the social safety net. I, I hate the pernicious incentive of paying people more to not work than to work. I think that's a failed policy. Yeah. But I think the idea of if you have access to it and it will enable you to grow in your financial security and maturity so that you can get out of that cycle and not need it any longer, then it serves a purpose. So don't be proud about whether or not to access those resources. Utilize them if they're available, but use them for the right reasons to reach escape velocity. So again, I'm preachy, but I think we can all do that, right? And again, as fathers, spouses, husbands, uh, spouses, fathers, husbands, leaders, um, that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's great. I really appreciate you kind of breathing life into our financial world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I took ridiculous amounts of notes and I really appreciate the, the, uh, the wisdom here. And um, just how can people, I mean, where can they find you if they want to know more? Um, you know, do you, what do you have out there? You mentioned a radio show. Sure. So, uh, and I'm, if there was a commercial around this, I guess this is what it's going to be, but I'm going to couch it this way. Um, we're so yes, I have a financial services business as uh, a registered investment advisor. So we help people with their investments. We help with financial planning and so forth. Uh, we're based in Oregon. We have clients all over the country. Uh, you can check out more if you go to, it's my last name. Uh, although we're, we're kind of uh, trying to make it, it's really not about me. We work as a team. Uh, I just was, when it was just me, my clients were like, hey, your name's catchy. Why don't you use that? So uh, it's LittleJohnFS, or Financial Services. So if you go to LittleJohnFS.com, you can learn more about what we're about. Uh, we're a boutique shop. We're independent. So, you know, it's not associated with a mega firm. Uh, we use back office resources from mega firms. The difference is if they don't treat us well, we can you know, leave them and go somewhere else because they're a vendor relationship rather than us being employees of them. Mm. So it, it gives us a, a unique position to really focus on serving our clients. Uh, and the other thing is we're big on relationships. I, I describe our firm as kind of a lifestyle firm where you got to trust the person you work with when it comes to money. Yeah. I mean, because in some respects, money is more personal than healthcare, right? I mean, somebody sharing your health history. We talk about HIPAA rules and, and respecting privacy. I understand why we do that. But in some, some ways, health kind of happens to you. I mean, right. we influence it, but if, if you have a, if you get diabetes or something, a lot of the time it's, some of it could be dietary, but especially like type one, you didn't plan that. It just happened. People sooner give me their medical history than their financial history because they assume a lot. They, I mean, we take a lot of, a lot of guilt and a lot of personal judgment 
over financial decisions. And what I will tell you is I'm not interested in judging anyone on their financial decisions. I'm interested in helping you improve your financial decisions because I think there's a path to daylight for everybody. Yeah. So we have, we have an expression in our office, not everybody come, becomes a client, but we'll help anybody. And uh, because we're a lifestyle firm, we want it to be a good, a good fit. So I'm not saying like, don't call us. That would sound that's ridiculous. It was, most people fit. We're really pretty flexible and accommodative. Uh, but it's, we do business a certain way. I guess is what it comes down to. So if it's not aligned with what you're looking for, that's okay. Uh, but if it is, that's okay too. And we, we're delighted to help. And uh, we have the ability to get licensed anywhere in the country. So it's not regional. Obviously, we're doing Zoom and everything. We're right. I love the I love face to face personal relationships. Ultimately, I try to uh, meet every single client that I have and give them a handshake and a hug. But right now, we're in a unique world. Yep. So I, I get it. I can, I can vouch for your, um, your business, your people. Uh, I, I know some of them by name and I, you know, their personalities just by following you guys, your radio show, uh, being a client, my wife's client and pretty much. I didn't understand that. Just so no. we're saying. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> you, know, you can say it. You can okay. say it. Say it. <laughs> and, and I've referred a ton of people your way and I think they're all extremely happy. Um, so with that, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, Pleasure, you guys, guys. Yeah. You. you guys can all find uh, David's information in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to David, it's there. Uh, take advantage of that. Uh, and, and, and there is, if for, for your kids, for example, we've got our education yeah. series on our YouTube channel. We are going to keep adding to that. It's, uh, it's not just for kids, believe it or not. What it was designed right. for us, it's explained <laughs> at, a, at a high school level. So it's okay. financial stuff explained at a high school level. So, but really useful for anybody. Uh, it was because my clients kept saying, "Hey, will you will you do something for my kids?" And uh, yeah. I was like, "Okay, well, let me do something where I one on one with everybody's kid got expensive." So we I, oh, we'll make some videos. That'll be good. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, guys, check him out. Thank you so much for listening to the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. There's this button in that podcast that says subscribe. And if you want to help us have amazing content, like people like David Littlejohn, who can help you increase your financial, your family, um, lifestyle, all those things, hit that subscribe button and we'll just keep bringing it. So uh, everybody have a great day. Thank you. <laughs>